but I think Hallmark got it wrong. It's not a Christmas miracle. How many, you, have your, you hear that like all the time. You know, I'm, I'm, that's going to be, a, that's a Christmas miracle. You know, I think they got it wrong. It's not a Christmas miracle. It's the miracle of Christmas, right? And that is Jesus coming to this earth to take on human flesh. I mean, just to think about deity taking on human flesh, it boggles the mind. It truly does. Join with me in prayer. Father, as we look into your scriptures, I believe that you have a gift for us that you would unwrap and that you would present to us. And that, Father, it's a gift of truth. And that, Father, even though there are some details that may be a little bit hard to follow at times, the truth is, Lord God, that there is a rich application. And so I just pray right now for hearts to receive your word, to receive the application of your word, that, Father, we would live in this dark world shining the light of Christ so brightly that others would see it and bring glory to your name and many would come to faith. So, Father, speak to us through your word right now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'm going to ask you a question. That was just simply sleight of hand. I'm not going to tell you how I did it. But I keep my grandkids in suspense. They're waiting. So, Grandpa, are you going to tell us how you do that trick? Eh, not this week. The truth, though, is we have been, many of us in the course of our life at some point have been deceived. More than just slight of hand, you've been deceived. I mean you have been incredibly duped. Not because you're stupid, but because the other person, maybe they were, but the truth is they were deceivers. And they duped you. you. You wanted to believe them, but in the end, you realized, no. It's not like Christmas. See, in Christmas, the package is wrapped not to cloak what's evil, but to cloak, hopefully, guys, what's good, right? This is cloaked. This cloaks what is evil. I can remember a time in which someone was working with me in, in my crew, and I, I he, he had to leave town. I said, okay, fine. He, had to, he said he had to go to his sister and take care of some things. While he was up there, he said, Mike, here's my situation. I'm four hours away. I need money for up, 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 and I need about $300. Can you just float me alone and, and electronically send me that, that money? And so I said, okay, I can do that. Now, I did not know this guy very well. Turns out he's an alcoholic. Turns out he was not visiting his sister. I never saw him again. I did speak with his sister, and she said, Mike, I am so sorry, but you'll never see that 300 again. I remember another time in which it was actually one of the leaders in our church, and he was like a son to me. I knew him very well, at least I thought. And then one day, he's sitting down, and he is just sharing the stuff that has been going on in his life. And what was going on behind the scenes was completely different than what I was led to believe. And I'd known him for several years, and I had placed him in a leadership position. Well, no, I don't think I need to tell you. I immediately had him step down. But for the next nine months, meeting with him about two to three hours every other week, preaching the gospel to him. He let me do that. And nine months later, he finally gave his heart to Christ. He said he, he wanted to come to church. We were meeting Saturday nights, actually in this building some years ago. And he said, Mike, the reason why I came 
is because I was afraid there would come a point in which the Spirit of God would stop convicting me of sin and that changed. But he deceived me. Many of you knew him. Deceived me. Underneath the veneer was something completely different than what I thought was there. At the end of the age, we are told that a man will rise up and will deceive the inhabitants of the earth to their destruction. Let me be frank here, to their eternal destruction. Christ will come back, however, at this time and defeat him forever. Defeat this this deceiver. He's known as the Antichrist, the Beast, the man of lawlessness. In 1 John 2, 18, it says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as, you've heard, as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. Can I ask you, how do we become resistant to deception? Now, I'm not talking about the sleight of hand. I'm talking about deception itself. And not just people being someone that they really aren't, but deception where you are presented with something that you're told is truth only to realize, oh my goodness, it absolutely is not. Now last week, we looked at the beast in Revelation 13 and 17. We are looking at what is called the end times. I do not pull out end times charts, prophetic charts, For me, it's fairly simple. I'm going to walk you through a few things in just a moment. But I think most people, when they look at Revelation, they see a roadmap to the end times. I'm going to suggest otherwise. I do believe that there are certain things specifically in chapter 16 and on that have to do with the end times. Everything else, though, has to do with what we are living in now. The judgments of God that are meant to bring people to repentance, what I call redemptive judgment. Last week we saw the man, excuse me, the beast, and that in chapter 13 he represented three kingdoms. He represented the kingdom of Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. He did not represent the fierce beast of Daniel 7. He did represent the other three, the lion, the bear, and the leopard. So what we saw was that instead of the fierce beast, there were seven kings instead of the Roman Empire. And as we looked at it, we realized seven is more of a symbolic number rather than a literal number. The king, there were five that had fallen, one that was reigning now and one that was to come, and then an eighth king I'll mention in a moment. I don't think John's purpose is specifically for us to count five fallen kings he does want us to know that one was one of those seven kings, and the picture is pretty clear from Rome. One was reigning now, one was yet to come, but he would reign only a little while. John was prophesying during the reign of, of, Domitian, of Domitian, and another that would eventually overthrow him would be, would be called by the name Nerva. He reigned only two years. What about the five? I don't think it's our, I don't think John is in, intends for us to count five because there were actually several more than five. But simply that there were seven total, meaning a complete, perfect number for God to accomplish his divine purposes. And can I suggest 
that the purpose of the beast is to make war against the saints. That his purpose is to persecute. We're going to see why that might be. But his goal is to trample truth in the streets. To create his own truth. To be a man or a master of deception. To take that which is not truth, that which is evil, and call it good. And deceive everybody into believing it's truly good. How do we, as followers of Jesus, should he come in our day... How, do, how are we resistant to that? That's where we're going to go with this. Then we began to realize that there was an eighth king who was actually called the beast. See, the seven heads that were seven kings were not called the beast because the beast once was, now is, and is yet, excuse me, he once was, now is not, so the seven heads are not the beast, though they are attached to the beast. So the seven rulers, the seven emperors of Rome, and then a seventh one that would, that would reign, that would be Nerva, but there would be an eighth king. So let's understand something. I realize that it, it's common in our day, and actually people who um, would find affinity to how I understand Revelation, I, I believe though that they're mistaken on this because many of them believe that the beast is in our day, but sometimes it's an ideology. Sometimes it's a vain philosophy. Sometimes it's a false religion. But can I suggest that it would be none of those simply because as we read through Revelation, it does not offer that as an option to us, that the beast is either a kingdom or a king. And so when we, when we ask the question, well, who or what is this beast? There are some things that we learned with regard to the beast that we've, we found in Revelation 13 and 16. We, we came to a conclusion as we went through this that the mark of the beast is not necessarily something that you're going to see or a stamp or a chip under the skin, but it would be parallel to the mark that was given to 144,000, the followers of Jesus, who were sealed on their foreheads, just like the mark of the beast is on the forehead and the hand. The hand represents what you do, the forehead representing what you think or believe. He, he deceives you into doing and believing what is wrong, what is evil. We're going to discover that a little bit more today, but that this mark is more a pledge of allegiance. So, I, And I'm saying this, and I want to emphasize it because I've heard so many Christians saying, but Mike, what if I accidentally get the mark of the beast? Because the Bible says that all those with the mark of the beast will be cast into hell. How, how, do, I, how do I keep from being cast into hell? And I have to suggest to them, I truly do not believe that the mark of the beast is a physical mark in the hand. It has everything to do with the heart. Just as the 144,000 followed Jesus, the lamb, everywhere he went, and God sealed them with his spirit, so you, these who follow the beast and worship him, we're going to get into that a little bit today, their allegiance is to him. That is the mark. That's the seal, because seals represented ownership. Who's your master? See, in the day of the beast, the inhabitants of the earth, those who are not Christians, will say he is the beast. Or, as we're going to discover today, Paul's term is the man of lawlessness. So let's turn with me, if you would, to that passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So are you there with me? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. 
So concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until, are you ready for this, church? Until the rebellion, the Greek word there is apostasia, literally translated apostasy, we're going to get into that in a moment, but until apostasy or the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction, in the Greek that's literally son of perdition or son of destruction, which by the way is the title Jesus gave to Judas Iscariot, the exact title. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. And can I just say, you don't have to go to a temple or a church or a synagogue to worship. Atheists worship a God. It could be their money. It could be their spouse. It could be what they think is truth, which is really falsehood concerning who God is. If there is a God, who is Jesus? And that is their worship. That's their God. So that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. I'm going to pause right there. I'm going to suggest, I believe, I understand that some believe that this is the Holy Spirit. And can I just suggest to you that in that understanding, if the Holy Spirit were taken out of the way, they usually believe that the Holy Spirit is removed from the earth because the church has been raptured. Can I ask you, how are people getting saved then? Because the fulfillment of the old covenant is the spirit of God in you. So I'm just going to suggest it, it's not the Holy Spirit. It may be an angel. It may be the Lord himself. But at the right time, they are removed so that because they're holding back the power of lawlessness, the power of sin. Right now, sin's powerfulness is being held back. There's going to come a day in which it will not be, and it will surge through this world like a flood. This is what he's telling us. And then, and then the lawless one, the man of lawlessness, will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. You see, the focus deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so, and so be saved. For this reason, God, God, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in lies. 
So Paul is writing them because apparently some word got out or a prophecy recorded, supposedly coming from Paul and his apostolic entourage, saying, hey, guys, the, the day of the Lord has already come. And, and Paul is saying, no, 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 guys, no, you haven't missed it. I mean, if you think the day of the Lord has already come, and I'm reading between the lines here, you don't understand what the day of the Lord is. Now, Paul had taught about the day of the Lord, and they didn't get it. Now, I'll be honest with you, reading this chapter, you can still walk away and still not get it, at least who this man of lawlessness is. I, I understand that. There are some things in this these 12 verses, church, that are hard to understand. I'm going to kind of walk you through it and share with you my perspective on this. There are other perspectives. You are free to look into those. But where I'm going with this, then, is the last few verses with regard to deception and how can we, as people of God, become deception-proof. So Paul is making it very clear. You know what? There's an order to the events coming down the home stretch. These certain things must take place. I'm going to throw the first one in there that he does not mention, but Scripture does talk about, and that is a global awakening. Now, there's like two dozen verses that talk about an outpouring of the Spirit, not from Acts chapter 2, though I do believe, man, that is a powerful outpouring of the Spirit, but that's throughout the whole church age. I'm talking about towards the end of the, the, the church age in which the knowledge of the Lord fills the earth even as the waters cover the seas, that the reign of Christ will be from sea to sea. It will be everywhere. I'm not suggesting that everyone's getting saved. I'm not suggesting this. But there will be such a move of the Spirit of God far beyond the first and second great awakening. But Paul's that, that might take some time. So Paul is focusing on that portion of time just before the day of the Lord. And these two things have not happened. So consequently, he's saying, guess what, guys? The day of the Lord hasn't come yet, just so you know. Take it easy. Don't be afraid. To, don't fret. What are those two things? Number one, apparently there will be a rebellion, an apostasia. Now, apostasia can be either a political rebellion or a spiritual rebellion. Personally, as I study through what you might call end times events, I would suggest that it's both. Because nations will stream into the kingdom, Isaiah 2 says, and as a result, many nations, you might call them Christian nations, but many nations, the, the majority or a large percentage will be followers of Jesus. And consequently, before Christ comes back, as the weeds grow up with the wheat, and if you've ever seen Darnell, which is the Greek equivalent to Zania, which is that Greek term used for weeds, it's not technically weeds, it is a certain type of weed. And this Darnell grows up with wheat, and they look identical. The only, the only time in which you can tell the difference is when the head opens and the Darnell looks just like very fluffy, very fluffy. Whereas the wheat, you can actually see the kernels of wheat. Okay, And that's when you can tell the difference. And at the end of the age, in essence, these heads will open. Something's going to happen in which it will make evident 
who are followers of Jesus and who are not. I'm going to suggest that Paul gets into it at least a little bit as far as what is going to happen. I believe that there is going to be an apostasy, a a political uprising, an overthrowing of of governments that may be led by Christians, and there will be a, a, a stronghold of evil as the spirit of lawlessness is released upon the world. If you think governments are evil now, just wait until then. I do believe it's going to get better, but before Christ comes back, there will be a sudden revelation of who are truly followers of Jesus and who are not. At this point, the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. It doesn't say that the apostasy happens and then the man of lawlessness is revealed, but these two things happen. Now, how will this happen? By the way, I mentioned to you, the man of lawlessness has a nickname that Paul gives him, and it's the same name, the son of destruction, meaning that his person is characterized by destruction or perdition, or the Greek word is lostness. Like when food goes bad, it spoils. That's the same Greek word that's used there. We looked at it when we looked at John 6. And so, He he is given the same epithet, the same nickname that Judas, the betrayer, was given. And I think we're going to find out in just a moment as we get to this next verse, verse 4. Something interesting happens here. And, And let me just, before I get into it. So the man of lawlessness is revealed. He deceives the world. And Jesus comes back and destroys him with the breath of his mouth. I don't believe it's because Jesus had bad breath. I don't believe it's just because he just breathes on them. But there is the, the breath represents that which comes out of his mouth. In Revelation 19, it says Jesus comes back on a white horse. It gives a picture, I believe it's very symbolic, with a sword coming out of his mouth. Now, I have never seen someone win a duel with a sword between their teeth. I've just never seen that happen. I'm not convinced that Jesus is going to come back with both hands tied behind his back and kill the man of lawlessness, the beast and the false prophet, and then kick them into hell. But rather, the sword is the word of God that's coming out of his mouth, bringing condemnation to their evil. And that will condemn them. Jesus, I didn't, I, I didn't condemn you. Your words and your actions actually condemned me. And so, I believe that when he's talking about the breath of his mouth, Jesus will just speak truth. Even as he spoke truth and things were created in Genesis 1, now he speaks judgment. He speaks truth against sin and the evil world is destroyed. I don't know how he's actually going to do this, but I believe that's what he's getting. And the man of lawlessness is destroyed. So verse 4, that's the order of events. Jesus comes back. I'm really looking forward to that day. If I am still alive, I really look forward to that day. The man of lawlessness, it says, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple. So that he sets him. Actually, it means that he is set up. He does, it's not reflexive. It's not that he sets himself up, but proclaiming himself to be God and to be that object of your worship, that in itself seats him or sets himself up in God's temple 
as God, as declaring himself to be God. So here's my question. Is this God's temple, is it some Jewish temple that's going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem? I, I understand that many believe this. I want to be careful here and not just say, hey, well, I, you're just wrong. Uh, this is my perspective. And I'm going to share with you why I disagree with that. But it, it's, it's going to have a point. Number one, I don't believe that this is the man setting himself up in God's temple as God is the abomination of desolation. That, that it was fulfilled in 70 AD. I, I don't believe that it's going to be fulfilled again. The, the stress during that day and that time with culminating in the abomination of desolation, which probably was Titus, General Titus, his dad left, Vespasian left, to be crowned king in Rome in 70 AD, 69 technically. And so he then takes Jerusalem. He did not want to burn the temple, so the Jews lit the temple on fire. Uh, that, that's probably the best conclusion, though nobody, not even um, Flavius Josephus is completely sure, but probably the Jews did it so that they would not be able to desecrate the temple. But what happened is when Titus came in, he set a Roman ensign, which would be the eagle on a staff, in that, that temple, and many believe that that is what the abomination of desolation was. Gentiles there, wicked men, and Titus himself declaring to be the victor, and even, as he later did, declared himself to be God. Now, I do believe that the abomination of desolation was already fulfilled in 70 AD. Mark 13, 14 says that this, uh, concerning the abomination of desolation, it says standing where it does not belong. And it's interesting that Mark uses the word standing and Paul uses the word sitting or seats himself or sets himself. But, I, I, and I do believe this idea of sitting is more metaphorical and we'll look at that in just a moment. But I want you to consider that in order for the, a Jewish temple to be built in Jerusalem, they would have to dismantle the Dome of the Rock just because of the location. The Dome of the Rock is where the temple used to be before it was destroyed in 70 AD. I doubt they're going to build it right next to the Dome of the Rock. I cannot for the life of me see how they would be able to, how Jews would be able to destroy the Dome of the Rock without the Arab nations that surround Israel destroying Israel. It is, such, it is so sacred for them. And I'm just going to suggest that instead of destroying the Dome of the Rock and building a Jewish temple, that that's actually not what Paul is getting at, that type of temple. Actually, if the Jews, even if they were followers of Jesus, were to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, that would mean that the brazen altar where you make bloody sacrifices would be built. It would mean everything with regard to the temple, which were simply meant to give us pictures of Christ. So that in, in Hebrews 8, we're said, they're now ab obsolete. Those pictures are obsolete. We do not need them. I'm going to suggest to you, this is Paul writing here, that Paul would never call a rebuilt Jerusalem temple the temple of God. He would never call it that. May I suggest something different? Actually, if you look at this phrase, temple of God or temple of the Holy Spirit, it's Paul uses this eight times. 
uses the word, and, and it's always temple of God or temple of the Holy Spirit. He uses that word temple then eight times. Every single time outside of this context right here, it refers to the church. It never refers to a physical temple, just so you know. I'm not saying that that's conclusive. It cannot be. I'm just suggesting to you that the evidence leads me to believe that this is not a literal temple. This truly is, as Paul says elsewhere seven other times, this is the church. So that the man of lawlessness poses himself as a Christian, as a godly man, as a follower of Jesus. And consequently, he becomes prominent, but to the point where people start following him, that his arrogance then seats him as God, even in the church. And I believe that the church, those who are truly the church, are going to say, you, this is, you are not God. You are not Jesus' second coming. And as a result, the man of lawlessness will create a vendetta, and his sole purpose will be to destroy the church because he would believe that these people, they're actually, with their so-called truth, they're really the ones destroying society, and I need to rebuild it. And through a number of means, he is going to portray himself as the one who delivers, as the, as the savior, as the one who brings peace, as the one who remedies people's problems. Do you have a problem? Let me take care of it. Do you have a financial issue? Let me just give you some money. He's the one that is, everyone's just going to start looking to him. This is a God. I, I, I doubt that the man of lawlessness is going to stand up one day and saying, hey guys, I just want you to know I'm God. That's just, that's just not subtle enough. Everyone's going to say, yeah, are you serious? But he is going to act like God. He is going to speak like a God. And people will give him their allegiance like they would give to a God. Consequently, he is going to deceive the whole world. And it goes on to say that he will do this with all kinds of counterfeit miracles. The word counterfeit means lying, false, pseudo, false miracles. I doubt that it's going to be like a card trick, sleight of hand. It is going to wow the world. But he's not just going to do miracles that will wow them. Remember now, the secret power of lawlessness is no longer being held back, and people's minds will be deceived, and he will be able to tell them that good is evil and evil is good. He will turn their ethics upside down, so to speak. He will now become, like Jesus was, the giver of truth. In essence, he will be the way, the truth, and the life. You need life, you, you need more money, I'll give it to you. And he will be the source of everything that they need throughout the world. And because the church, those who truly believe the truth, will not accept him, he will see the church, he will see you as a cancer that needs to be excised. And it is his goal in deceiving the world to turn against Christians. Church, we, we're seeing that in our day. I'm not suggesting that the man of lawlessness is in our midst or on earth today. He may be. I don't know. He may be. But how about some of these things? Sex before marriage. I cannot tell you how even people that call themselves Christians are okay with sex before marriage. And they, 
They say, of course. What's wrong with this? I mean, just view us as married, though we're not. And, And there's excuses that are given. This is so common in our day. So common. Slander and gossip. Am I getting too close to home? That is okay. Because we need to solve this problem, and this person's the problem, so we need to talk about this person. Maybe under, under certain circumstances, and I'm even careful saying that, but church, if there is someone that you're talking about and what you're saying is negative about them, don't put that on the table for discussion. Bible calls that gossip, and if it's attacking them, they call it slander. We don't do this. But in any church, and ours is not exempt, people do it everywhere. And it's called right and good by many. Abortion, embraced in a political agenda, communities of people who call themselves churchgoers and Christians vote for the politician that will try to reinforce Roe v. Wade. Abortion is okay. And, and I've heard some pastors defending it. Well, we're voting him for him because, you know, it is a woman's choice, and they mingle words there. But then they go on to say, because now we, we, the government needs to be helping the poor. The government needs to be doing this and this and this and this. And they, they talk about, in essence, to use a different term, they just talk about a socialist state, which I don't think is biblical. And consequently, Abortion then becomes okay. Homosexuality. When you get into discussions with even people who call themselves Christians, well, it, look with this scripture and this scripture, and if you're not careful, they, with sleight of hand, they will twist words and make passages say what they absolutely do not mean. And, and, and it's scary enough for me. I haven't so much talked with them. I've read their articles by people who say they're pastors and theologians, and it's terrifying. It's like, Wow, that, that's terrible. You just twisted scripture completely to suit your purposes. But this is what the man of lawlessness will do. I'm just suggesting to you, church, it's not going to be anything new. It will just be rampant in that day. Gender confusion. Open marriage. Drug and alcohol abuse. Regularly excused. How about this one? Racial, sexual, religious discrimination in favor of the minority. I don't care what discrimination it is. It's just plain wrong. For the majority or for the minority, we we don't do it. It's called favoritism, and James 2 is very clear. We don't do it. Don't excuse it. We just don't do it. And on and on, evil is called good, and good is called evil. So, there are two things that will deceive those who are perishing. Number one, that the man of lawlessness will declare himself to be God. The world will start agreeing with this. And again, I'm not suggesting he's going to declare, hey, just so you know, I'm God. But he will act like it, and people will treat him like it. People, there's a story told, and forgive me, I can't remember the king's name, but he was from the king of Armenia. And he traveled to Rome during Nero's emperorship. And there was, Nero saw, there was such a huge entourage, he paid for their entire trip there 
to Rome. When they were in Rome, he, it, was, it was a free vacation for them. When they came into the, the palace arena, wherever the uh, ceremony took place, uh, everything was decorated immaculately. They paraded these people through the streets until they finally got there. And when they got there, the king of Armenia basically said, I am here to pledge my allegiance to you. You are my king and my God, and I worship you. Not just I bow the knee, but I give worship to you as to a God. Can I just tell you that that king, if he thought he was rich, just became richer. Because Nero just lavished him with gifts. Can you imagine the man of lawlessness? Of course, hey, you pledge allegiance to me. I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. But it's a deception. And he deceives those who are perishing. Why will the world be deceived? Scripture is very clear. Paul is very clear here. The reason why they are deceived is because they refused to love the truth. Church, that is the key. Do you want to become deception proof? You have got to love the truth. Now, I'm not just saying you've got to just love and, and love the word and you read it like four hours a day. The Pharisees did that. But can I say, if you love the truth so that you're in the word four hours a day, I commend you for that. But reading the word four hours a day doesn't just necessarily mean, you well, you must love the truth because the Pharisees did not. They simply wanted to use that to justify themselves. The goal wasn't to see Christ, wasn't to see God so they could worship him. The real goal was, hey, if I do this, this, and this, I must be a godly man. And everyone will like me and praise me. And everyone will blow their horns when I put money into the offering and so on and so on. People will adore me. So they used the word to a wrong end. Okay, so I'm going to suggest that we must be lovers of the truth so that we will not be so easily deceived. So number one, that means... I want to take the next several minutes. How do we become deception-proof? Accept all, number one, accept all of God's truth. Don't pick and choose. Don't say, you know, wow, I like this, and I like this, and I like this, you know. But this one right here I really have a problem with. I don't like the idea of hell. I don't like the idea of judgment. I don't like the idea of someone coming to me. And even though their goal is good to help me overcome sin, no. If you see sin in my life, you leave me be. But you see, Scripture actually commands us. Those who are spiritual, those who have maturity about them, if you see someone caught in a sin, help them. The next verse says, by doing this, that you bear one another's burdens. That's what that phrase is. That's the context of that phrase, bearing one another's burdens. When you see them in sin, you come alongside them and you help them out of that pit of deception and that struggle with their sin. You help them. That's your goal. You do it with humility. You do it with love. Because the Bible bear another's burden so you fulfill the law of Christ, which is love. It's not so that, hey, you know what? That is sin. Did you not realize? You're sinning. Hey, guys, what's with that? That's, that's not the heart of Christ. The heart of Christ comes under their shoulder, helps them up. Just like the good Samaritan with the Jew that had fallen prey to, the, to those who had beaten him and stolen his money. We come along, we help them up, but the world doesn't. Hey, stay, that's, that's, stay out of my business. 
judge me. We want to accept all of God's truth. All of it. Not the parts that we like. We don't just discard the parts that we don't like. Everything. We believe that the Bible is the word of God. It's God-breathed. There's no error in this. This is God doesn't speak error. He speaks truth. And we're called, you know what? I, I need to accept this. This right here, this is God's word. It is the truth. I don't look for, to some other book or some other great philosopher that I like, Kierkegaard or whoever, who claims to be Christian. You accept only anything that man says. It's got to be, it's got to bear witness from the word, God's word, the Bible. So we access where we start. Accept God's truth, all of it. Number two, can I just read God's word, read God's truth, the Bible, and practice it. Follow it even when it costs you everything. Everything. So if the Spirit of God, just this past week, happens to be convicting you of an issue in your life, don't just walk away feeling so under the weight of condemnation. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. If the Holy Spirit brings conviction, it's to help you get out of it to empower you and give you strength as you rely upon him. We call that grace. His goal is to help you. It is a good goal. It's not just like this. I grew up with the dead, in all honesty. He's now with the Lord, and I'm grateful that he followed Christ. He had, he had uh, something back in the 70s. I was a teenager. I had just given my heart to Christ, and God did something in my dad's life. But up to that point, my dad was very austere. He was someone that you wanted to avoid. He had a horrible temper. I remember one day he put his fist right through the wall of our bedroom. He was so angry. And he left it there for I don't know how many months just to remind us, hey, when I tell you to go to bed, you go to bed and you don't say a word. And consequently, I grew up with a lot of fear for authority. But my dad... My dad had a difficult time reading the word. My dad had a difficult time, not just, he, he was okay understanding it, but it was loving it. See, I believe that we are, we're, we're to read God's word, not just for knowledge. We're to read God's word to practice it. We, we follow it even when it costs us everything because God invites us to experience the truth. I love theology. But if there is a thing called theology that you cannot experience, you will not find it in this book. It's not there. Every bit of theology is so that you can encounter a God that changes you and loves you and helps you through the struggles. Every bit of theology works to that end. It's not just a nice, nice little tidbit of information you tuck away to win in some debate with another Christian. It is to change your life. It is for you to experience the truth about God. And God's word, its goal is to reveal Jesus. Jesus perfectly represents God the Father. He is God in the flesh. 
we see in the Gospels, we see how he lived. The, the letters talk about how he impacted people and what he said and how you live it out. And we are called then not just to know the truth by reading it, but to experience it. It's more than just reciting a creed. Because this truth reveals Jesus. Ugh. God wants you to get truths in your spirit, such as he's your provider. He's your provider. Now, I have a certain perspective when it comes to borrowing. I'm not going to get into all of that. I believe that God can provide for my needs. And so I, I have a very, a very particular view of, of concerning borrowing money. A bit ago, there, I had a need, certain financial need. It wasn't like huge or anything, but I wanted God to, to provide for it. And I was not going to look anywhere else. God, you're going to provide. You know I'm working, you're going to do that. I prayed that day for a very specific amount. Later that day, as I was visiting someone, they reached over and put something in my shirt pocket. Okay? I turned around, you know, you know, said my goodbyes and headed out, sat in my vehicle, pulled out a wad of cash that was the exact amount that I had prayed for that morning. Not a dollar more, not a dollar less. Church, can I just tell you, God delights in allowing you to go through circumstances that you might say are hard, God, why are they doing this? Purposefully to put your back against the wall so that there is no other way for you to get out of that jam other than God, by his grace, providing for you. How are you going to respond to that? God, I can't believe that you're doing this. Have a sour attitude. God, I just... You're just against me like all the time, God. Why do you do this? Come on, church. I'm not too far from the truth, am I? We whine and we complain, right? We do it. And God is just saying, if you could just be patient, if you could actually consider it pure joy when you face trials like this. What a novel concept. I think God can be sarcastic sometimes. Be joyful. Why? Because you know in your knower, in your spirit, in your heart of hearts, you know who God is, and you know that he's going to come through. You may not know exactly how he's going to do it, but he's going to do it. He has you, your back up against the wall. Does anybody understand, anybody ever have that happen to you? Your back is up against the wall, and it's like, God, there is nothing else that I can do. I have prayed, and right now, I, I just need you to step in, or you know what? I lost my job, or... I lost this relationship, or whatever it might be. And I need you to, to, to just do something, God. How many of you then see God in his own way providing the ample grace, whatever that grace was in that moment, to provide for your need? That, I'm going to tell you right now, that endeared your heart to him. That endeared him to your heart. You experienced truth. So we don't just read it and put it into practice. We're called to experience this truth of who God is. He then invites us to know the truth. That is to know Jesus, who is the truth. That's actually the starting point. I mean, you can read the word. You've got to know the gospel to respond to it. 
God is usually going to put you in a difficult situation to get your attention, but now you've got to know Jesus. Now you are invited not just to know about him, but to truly know Jesus. And that Greek word know, gnosko, is generally understood in contexts like this, to know the truth, to set you free. It's not here, it is here. He wants you to know it, to experience it, to be a follower of Jesus. If you don't know Jesus... My friend, you are perishing. These people, didn't, they refused to love the truth. Consequently, they rejected Jesus. I'm going to guarantee you they think that they are doing the right thing. Jesus, maybe in that day, one of the lies will simply that's mixed in all of this garbage is that Jesus was just one of the reincarnations or manifestations of Vishnu or whoever. And that all religions will lead us to that same place of love. But can I just ask you, where are they going to get their definition of love? Any idea? Because the Quran defines love very differently than this book here does. On many issues. Not everything, but on many issues. How do you treat women? How do you treat homosexuals? Do we just kill them? Or do we try to speak truth that their hearts are changed? Anyone caught in sin? See, anyway, I digress. The truth, though, is that we are invited to know Jesus. Can I ask you, have you ever been bored in a conversation with a stranger who is just going on and on and on and going into great detail about their life? Okay, some of you just talked to me last week. That does not count. I'm not a stranger. You've had a conversation with someone, and it's like you just you're, you're you're trying to paint the smile on, and your cheeks start hurting, and before you know it, oh please, you start praying, they stop, right? Please, Lord, this is killing me. Can I ask you though, if you are engaged or married, and your fiance or your spouse begins to go into great detail about something they're going through? Do you get bored or do you lean in? Because now you're interested. Why is there a difference? Can I suggest? It's because with a stranger, you don't really know them. You're not close. You're not intimate with them in a relationship. But you are with your fiance and especially, hopefully, your spouse. And you care about their needs. You care about the details. Now, here's where I'm going with this. If you, since the word of God reveals Jesus and I'm building a relationship with him as this, as it reveals Jesus to me, I want to listen in and lean in to the details. I want to ask questions. I want to get to know who this is. Who is this Jesus? Church, I'm 62 years old. I have walked with the Lord for 48 years. Man, that's a long time. 48 years. I think Cole's walked with the Lord longer than me, though. 48 years, and I can hardly wait for the next 20 to 30, however many he chooses to give me. Or maybe he comes back before them. I'll be okay with that. I look forward to those years because I'm going to get to know Jesus even more. I'm going to get to fall in love with him and with his truth even more. 
all of this, it shows me Jesus. It enables me to walk closer, more intimately with him. I once read that an atheist called the Bible boring. And the astute person's response was, well, that's what you get for reading someone else's love letter. The voice of truth. Number four, I want you, I think God wants you to be a voice of truth. I think God wants you to speak the truth. There's just something that when we speak truth, it empowers faith, it enables it, it does something with faith. That is why we believe in our heart, but we confess with our lips, Jesus is Lord. There's something about confessing. There's something about speaking the truth. How many of you have ever maybe had a hard day, but there was an opportunity to minister to someone speaking truth? So I'm not just talking serving them, though that might, help, that might be the similar, but you had an opportunity to really minister to them, and it did. It ministered to them. And when you walked away, how drained were you? Now, maybe you were drained. Generally, though, people walk away from those types of situations feeling like they're on cloud nine. Why? Because they had an opportunity. Something happened when they spoke truth that invigorated and ignited their faith and their desire now to follow Jesus even more. So church, speak the truth. Speak it in love. We're followers of Jesus. Do you want to become impervious to deception? Do you want to be able to recognize it? Then love Jesus and love his word. Fall in love with him. Love the truth. Experience it. Don't just cram it into your brain. Cry out to him, God, this is what I just read in my time with you today. And man, I want to live this. Show me just this little phrase stuck out to you. God, I want to do that. I want that to be me. So help me right now because I'm just really struggling. You mentioned forgiving people. You just, you don't know my dad. You don't know my uncle. You don't know my brother. You don't know my spouse. Mm. Can we forgive? And we struggle. So church, you don't just want to read about it in black and white. You want to cry out to God. Because right now, he's trying to press your shoulders against the wall. Who are you going to rely on? Man of lawlessness is going to say, me. Because I'm the source of truth. I'm the source of direction for your life. You know what? Jesus is that for me. He's my God. He's the one I worship and I follow. I pledge my allegiance to him and him only. And so when I'm saying, God, I can't do this. I can't forgive. It is so hard. Cry out to him. He will empower you to do anything in accordance with his truth. Anything. If you feel like you're as timid as a mouse and an introvert, how on earth am I going to ever share the gospel? Cry out to him. And I'm going to tell you this. He will empower you and he will give you words to say. And, you know, you might stumble over your words. God doesn't care about that. Do you have the heart? Can you just open your mouth and speak? Because he will put words in your mouth. And he will use you. But church, let's speak the truth. Be a voice for truth. And I'm just going to close with this. Psalm 40, verses 9 and 10. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips as you know, O Lord. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and salvation. I do not conceal your love and your truth from the great assembly. Church, speak truth. 
Be a lover of truth, and you will be deception-free. I promise you. But if you refuse to love it, if you refuse to follow the Lord, if you're picking and choosing, I'm gonna, I like this one, but this one, mm-mm. Are you really a lover of truth? I'm going to tell you right now that if you're not a lover of truth, you will open your heart to be deceived. And if the man of lawlessness is not in our generation, then you will be deceived by the things of your culture. That is just the nature of the pressures of culture. Church, can you just stand with me? And I just want to ask you guys tonight, as I close in prayer, are you a lover of truth? I, I, I can understand when our hearts can feel cold at times. A number of reasons for this. If it lasts long, I'm going to encourage you to do something about it. But press into Jesus. Ask him to change your heart. If you sit down to his word and it's just like boring, ask him to ignite something in your heart that just falls in love with that. Mary sat at the feet of Jesus because she loved. Jesus, and she loved the truth. So, Father, I just ask, give us hearts that long for the truth. Give us hearts that are willing to follow Jesus no matter what. Give us hearts, Lord, that follow you at any cost. And I pray, Father, that no matter what deception is out there, it would never deceive our hearts because Jesus is the lover of our soul and we love him. He is our bridegroom. He's the one that we pursue and pledge our allegiance. He is the one that we are completely, completely devoted to. And every life is offered as a sacrifice on his altar. This is my life, Jesus. Today I live it for you. Empower me to that end. God, please make us lovers of the truth. In Jesus' name I pray.